How do you go at waking up in the morning? Are you a, are you a morning sort of person? So that's no, not, not too bad. Are you a night person? So just getting out of bed in the morning is a bit more of a challenge. Have you got any tricks for waking yourself up a little bit in the morning, you know, splashing water on your face, strong cup of coffee, uh, maybe putting the alarm clock on the other side of the room so you've physically got to get out of bed to turn it off? I was reading an article on the top 10 ways to help wake yourself up. seems that pulling your hair in the morning, uh, not too hard, just sort of gent- if you can get hold of it, gently, <laughs> gently tugging it will get the blood circulating in your head, help you wake up. A little further up the drastic scale, uh, they suggested biting a lemon first thing in the morning. I'm not sure I can come at that, although I did notice that the Murrays have got a bag of lemons in the foyer for us all to take this morning, and if this morning's Bible talk starts to get a bit, just duck out, grab a lemon, it'll, it'll get you through. Today's Bible passage is all about waking up. The section of Isaiah that we're looking at, we just read the first six verses of chapter 51, we're going to dip into 52 as well, it's about waking up as a result of hearing something. And so, for example, in our reading that we just heard, verse 1, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Verse 4, listen to me, my people. Verse 7, hear me, listen to me, you who know what is right. The start of these chapters, it's all about listening and hearing, but then there's a movement in the tone. Verse 9, awake, awake. Clothe yourself with strength. Verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. Chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, O Zion, which is another word for Jerusalem. Awake, clothe yourself with strength. Do you see the flow of these chapters? It's about, it's going from hearing to waking. And so just like tomorrow morning, you will hear the alarm clock go off and so hopefully you will wake up. God wants Israel to hear something and wake up. And it's not about hearing an alarm clock so as to physically wake up. God wants Israel to hear something really important about his plans and his purposes so as to spiritually wake up. God wants Israel to just open her lazy, apathetic eyes and just get serious about living for him. God actually wants us all to do that. And so there's some good things to to hear in today's passage. Let's discover what they are by firstly thinking about what God wants Israel to listen to. What's the alarm clock that's effectively going off in these chapters? Back to our reading, verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one. And I blessed him and made him many. Now what's going on here is that God is getting Israel to cast their minds all the way back to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. Abraham, of course, being the person from whom all of Israel descended. That's why Abraham's described there in verse 1 as the rock from which they were cut. He's the patriarch from which they all came. But the big point is verse 2, when God says that when he first called Abraham, he was but one. 
In other words, Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't have any children. In fact, if you remember the story, they were both very old. They had very little likelihood of ever having children. And yet God promised this elderly, childless couple that from them many, many, many descendants would come. And it happened. God produced an entire nation, the nation of Israel, from an elderly, childless couple. And Isaiah's point is, how spectacular is God to be able to do that? How impressive is God's ability to keep his word and do what he says, no matter how unlikely it may appear? Well, verse 3, well, God will surely comfort Zion. And will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. You feeling the point? If God's able to keep his word to Abraham and do something as unlikely as create an entire nation out of him, well then, surely, verse 3, God can and will be able to comfort Zion. Surely God's going to be able to have compassion on Jerusalem. Surely he's going to restore Jerusalem's ruins because... That is exactly what God has been saying he will do for the last 10 chapters in the book. Now that's a bit hard to remember, I know, because we've had a bit of a break from Isaiah these past few weeks. But of course, this is the start of our fourth and final instalment of Isaiah for the year. And so far, in the first 50 chapters up until now, hopefully you might remember that what we've been seeing in Isaiah is that it has set out for us God's grand plan for the world. It set out for us God's plan to transform the entire world by punishing rebels and pardoning the repentant. God has a plan to punish sin. His holiness, his justice demands that. But out of his love, he's also got a plan to make it possible for repentant people, people who are ashamed of their sin, people who are regretful of their sin. He's got a plan to wash their sin as white as snow. And we've discovered that Israel's got a really important role to play in this plan. At first, their role's not going to be all that pleasant because God's going to punish their sin by sending them into captivity in Babylon. But after that, he has plans to comfort them. A remnant will survive. A remnant will be restored back into the promised land. And out of that remnant, we discovered in our last instalment, a mysterious servant is going to emerge. A servant who will fulfill all of God's plans. A servant who will establish God's justice in all the nations and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is a big cosmic plan that Isaiah has laid out for us in the first 50 chapters. Israel's got an important role to play in it, but it's not a plan that's just about Israel. This is a plan to transform the entire creation by completely eradicating sin. And now you see again as we return to Isaiah here in chapter 51, do you hear what, do you hear what Isaiah is doing now? He's emphasising that this plan we've been hearing all about, it may sound very big and grand. It may almost sound too good to be true. It's a plan that almost sounds unbelievable. It's going to happen. Just as God's word to Abraham seemed unbelievable, yet it came true. So everything God has already said so far in Isaiah, it's going to happen. Verse 3, the Lord will surely comfort Zion. He will look with compassion on her ruins. In other words, come time, this rescue of Israel from their captivity in Babylon, 
that is promised in his, as part of his plan is going to happen. Verse 4, listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me. Do you hear the certainty of these verses? It's going to happen. Verse 5, lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Now Isaiah here is rushing forward to the, to the big cosmic dimensions of God's grand plan for the world. It's rushing forward to the end goal of the plan because remember it's a plan that involves Israel but it's not confined to Israel. And just as Israel's released from Babylon as part of the plan is going to happen, the whole shebang is going to happen. The plan to finally and fully punish rebels. The, the, the plan to wrap this world up and purify the repentant. The plan to, to wash sins clean. The plan to unleash an act of salvation so far reaching that it will bring an end to the world as we know it. Sounds unbelievable. It's going to happen. The final sentence of verse 6 sums it all up really. My salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. I noticed in the uh, most recent annual Gallup poll on honesty and ethics, uh, nurses came in again as the highest ranking profession for reliability and honesty. For about the 11th year in a row, nurses are the profession that people trust most. Good on you if you're a nurse. Pharmacists, medical doctors... High school teachers, police made up the rest of the top five. Clergy squeaked in at number six. At least we did better than politicians. No one rates better than God for honesty and trustworthiness. He always does what he says. His word is his bond his righteousness will never fail and therefore God's act of salvation this epic plan that we've been reading about all year in Isaiah this plan of sins forgiven and a new creation coming it's a certainty and friends being this side of Jesus Christ in history surely this is a truth that resonates with you and me all the more I mean, not only from our vantage point in history, not only can we see that Israel really was comforted and restored out of captivity in Babylon, but we also get to see that in Jesus so much of the plan is fulfilled. Jesus' death on the cross in our place is what makes it possible for us to have sins washed as white as snow. And as we've been seeing in Luke's Gospel, Jesus came and self-consciously went out of his way to show that he is the servant described in Isaiah, the one who brings justice and salvation to all the nations. If Isaiah is telling Israel back then how certain God's plans of salvation are, how much more do we, the followers of Jesus, know that? And back here in Isaiah, God wants this certainty of his salvation. He wants it to be an alarm clock going off for Israel. He wants to jolt them out of their slumber. He wants to shake them out of their indifference to God. 
And he wants them to just get up and get going and do certain things. Let me briefly point out just two things that God says to Israel that they should wake up and do. It's not an exhaustive list for the sake of time. Let me just pick out two things that God wants Israel to wake up and do. The first is he wants them to be fearless. And this is actually something that he says a couple of times. The first time is quite early in the passage, just after our reading, verse 7 of chapter 51. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have law in my hearts. Do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, the worm will devour them like wool, but my righteousness will last forever. Look also at what God says down in verse 12 of the same chapter. I, even I, am am he who comforts you. Who who are you that that you fear mortal men? The sons of men who, who are but grass. Twice in this section, Isaiah urges his readers to not fear people. And that's because at the time of Isaiah's ministry, there was no shortage of people who were trying to intimidate them and bully them uh, into not trusting God. Back in chapter 36, do you remember how King Sennacherib's field commander stood outside Jerusalem and taunted them and mocked them and threatened them, called on them to surrender, paid fun at the idea that God could, could deliver them? But even within Israel, there were, there were those people in power who opposed Isaiah. Tradition has it that a very elderly Isaiah actually died by being sawn in two during a violent persecution led by the then king of Judah. But back here, Isaiah is saying, don't be put off if you get a hard time for being one of God's people. Don't be intimidated by the reproach of men. Don't be terrified by the insults because Remember, remember God's plan? Remember the certainty of it? Because all that criticism and stuff, it's going to come and go in the blink of an eye compared to the backdrop of eternity. God's salvation, that is what lasts forever. It's not a, bur- it's not a bad word for us to hear as well. I mean, we, we, there's not much chance of us being sawn in two. But if we're open about following Jesus, we're going to cop a heart. We're going to cop our fair share of opposition. We'll get we'll get the funny looks. We'll get a maybe a bit of uh, criticism. We'll feel the force of peer pressure. To just keep our heads down and shut up about Jesus, so as to fit in and be popular. Don't be so over the top about Jesus that you'll actually draw attention to yourself. If any of you saw Peter Jensen on Q and A a little while ago, and the grilling that that guy copped for opposing same-sex marriage and advocating different roles for husbands and wives in marriage. The hostility that he faced in that room just for standing up for being a Christian in a, in, in a public forum. But against the backdrop and perspective of eternity, any criticism or mocking or hostility we might ever face in this life, it's actually very, very short-lived. And waking up to the certainty of God's eternal salvation should therefore cause us to be fearless. Indeed, rather than being pressured into being quiet about God's salvation, we should be actively proclaiming it to everyone who will listen. Which is the second thing God wants Israel to wake up and do. And unlike the being fearless thing, um, 
this one's only mentioned once, reasonably briefly, really, but I thought I'd draw attention to it because it is mentioned in a memorable way that you may have heard before and that Daryl read to us earlier. Look again at 52 verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Maybe you've heard those, those words before about being how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. It's a song that's often quoted. It's a, song that we've just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verse that we've just sung a song about. You see it on Christian posters and stuff. The Apostle Paul quotes it in his letter to the Romans when he's telling them about how important it is for people to hear the news about Jesus, but how they get to hear the news about Jesus unless someone tells it to them, the Apostle Paul quotes, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, this is where the verse originally comes from. It's all within the context of Isaiah emphasising the truth that since God's salvation will happen, since it will come, then the news of it needs to be spread so that as many people as possible might be saved. On the news during the week, um, in that sort of token animal story that they feel as if they've always got to end the bulletin on, there's the story of Duke the dog, whose owners reckoned that uh, Duke saved the life of their daughter. What happened was that Duke dumped onto their bed in the middle of the night, uh, shaking them awake. Strange sort of behaviour. They figured something must be not quite right. So they got up, checked on their nine-week-old daughter and discovered that she had stopped breathing. They immediately called paramedics who arrived in the nick of time to revive her and their little daughter made a full recovery. Nice happy ending, but I'm thinking if Duke the dog is capable of alerting people so as to save them, surely we are too. And yet so often we don't. Day in and day out, we rub shoulders with people at school, at work, at sport, in our hobby groups, and sometimes it just never even crosses our mind to even mention Jesus. What are we, asleep or something? This is the sort of stuff that needs to be shouted from the rooftops. And Isaiah's point is, Good on you if you're one of the ones shouting it. Good on you if you're looking for opportunities to just drop Jesus into the conversations that you're having. Good on you if you're lending out books and DVDs and music that will help people uh, think about Jesus. Good on you if you're planning to help out in the January Kids Club. Good on you if you've been madly inviting your your mates to the Men and the Meaning of Life event. Good on you, ladies, if you're even now planning who you're going to bring along to the Christmas showcase this year. Good on you if you've decided to go without something so you have a bit more money in the next couple of weeks to give to the greatest journey. Good on you if you're teaching scripture to students in our schools. Why would we not be doing any of those things, all of those things? Because the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, but God's salvation will last forever. Are you hearing how this section of Isaiah fits together? It starts out by telling us to listen to the certainty of God's salvation. 
a salvation that is all the more certain for us because of Jesus Christ. And hearing about the certainty of God's salvation should be like an alarm clock going off in our lives. This should be like an alarm clock stirring us out of our petty little worlds of the mortgage and wondering what's on telly tonight. This should be an alarm clock that causes us to open our eyes and see what's the sort of stuff that actually matters and the stuff that doesn't matter. This is an alarm clock going off that should cause us to wake up to ourselves and be fearless about God and eager to spread the news of his salvation. And if I'm picking up the tone of these chapters rightly, this is a truth that I really need to press home. This is a truth that is something truly worth waking up to. Have you been listening this morning? The heavens will vanish. Have you got it? Has it registered? A day is coming when this world will disappear in a roar. And the house and the car and the shed and the boat and the caravan and the wardrobe of clothes and the gadgets and the academic records and the career and the promotions and the garden and the holiday snaps and the DVD collection and the bank account and the superannuation and the share market will all be gone. And all that will be left will be things to do with salvation in Christ. That's not an alarm clock going off. That's a foghorn going off in our ears. How can we not wake up to that? Especially when it's, it's hardly a burden to wake up to it. I mean, I don't know about you, but the way I wake up in the morning, it's, it's largely determined by what I'm waking up to. And so if I've got to get up really early to drive to Sydney for some denominational committee meeting, I don't want to get out of bed those days. That is a struggle. But if I'm getting up just as early for the start of holidays, that's something altogether. When you've got something good to wake up to, makes all the difference. We've got something wonderful to wake up to. Sins washed clean. A new creation. God's salvation will last forever. It's an exhilaration to be woken up by those truths. Let's live it fearlessly. Let's share it joyfully. I'll pray. Father, thank you for these verses in your word that remind us of your certainty and faithfulness and trustworthiness. Thank you that especially in Jesus Christ we can see that all your plans and purposes are indeed fulfilled. Thank you for the way that in Jesus you have enabled us to have our sins washed clean. And Father, as we wait with certainty for your kingdom to come in full. Help us to wait fearlessly, joyfully sharing the news about it, please. Amen.